Our text is Galatians 2, verses 15 to 21, but I'll start reading at verse 11. So it's Galatians 2, starting at verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to honor your word. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we pray that you would open our ears to hear it, and please uh, encourage us and discipline us and motivate us to obey it in the week ahead. We thank you now for this, your word, and the time together in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's Rodney up here, so I'm going to start with a movie illustration. <laughs> and actually, I really, I really think this is an appropriate one. I want you to remember this text all the time. From now on, you kids, you will remember this text 50 years from now, I think, if you read Galatians 2. So, who has seen the movie Castaway? Very good, very many hands. Now, Castaway was maybe, I don't know, 12 years ago, I think it came out, and so many of the young people probably haven't seen it, so it's necessary for me to share a little bit about what the movie was about, at least that pertinent to our analogy. So first, a man who is an executive with Federal Express is being sent overseas, and he's on this Federal Express plane with a bunch of packages and just maybe three or four other people. They go way off course across the Pacific Ocean because they've got a huge storm. The plane crashes, Everybody dies but him, and he washes up on this island, very, very small island. He goes exploring. He learns he's the only one there. Now, in the few days after he's crashed, he's expecting immediate rescue, and as he's at the shore, these packages are washing up on shore, 
So he's a dutiful Federal Express employee. He's picking up those packages, he's taking them up on shore, and he's stacking them, ready for when he's saved, he's going to get them back into the system, get them delivered. Well, after several days, and he's hungry, and he's thirsty, and he's alone, and no one shows up, he starts opening the packages. He thinks, okay, I'm, I'm here for the duration. I'm, I'd better figure out if I have anything here that can help me. So I'll only talk about one of the packages that he opened. It was a ball. It was a volleyball. And so he knocks it away from him. He's like, ah, you know, no use there. So he's stacking all the stuff he can't use over here and all the stuff he hopes to use over here. And then time goes on, and he begins to get very frustrated living all alone on this island. And he ends up cutting himself really badly. And he smacks this ball, and he's got this fire going, this big blaze going, and he sees the ball across the way looking at him. His handprint had left a face on that ball. So he begins to talk to this ball. It becomes his friend. The ball's name is Wilson. That's the, manuf <laughs> that's the manufacturer of the ball, and so he names it Wilson. So now, years go by, and we're not there with him all the time in this movie, but suddenly you see years go by, and he's talking to Wilson like he's his best buddy. I mean, and it's just, you wouldn't distinguish the fact that he's not talking to a person. Now, Wilson never talks, but he, he continues talking to him. Now, at one point, he gets angry with himself for talking to a volleyball. And so he knocks it out of the shelter that he's in. But then within seconds, he's running out of the shelter saying, Wilson, Wilson, I'm sorry. Because that's his companion. It's his constant companion on this island. He has tried to escape the island, but it has this huge, uh, huge waves crashing, a strong undertow, and he can't get off the island. But eventually... A large piece of hard plastic washes up on shore, and he's able with that to build a raft. He's learned how to tie these boards together with this rope that it takes him forever to make. He's tied a raft together. He's tied the sail to it, and he escapes this island. So now he's having to get hundreds of miles perhaps out into the shipping lanes to where he can hopefully be discovered. And as you're there with him on the raft, you see that, that Wilson is the worst for wear. Wilson has gone years on this island and the face keeps fading, but he'll keep cutting his hand and dabbing his blood on the ball to make a face for Wilson. Wilson is all ripped up now and his head is gone and he's stuffed straw in there. So now it looks like Wilson has this straw crew cut and, and he's got Wilson posted on these sticks on his raft. He's weathered this storm. He's all sunburned. I mean, it's a very well done movie. And one morning... The water is sloshing, and you see Wilson drop off the raft into the water. And you all think, we all think, it's just a volleyball, right? Starts floating away, bobbing away, and suddenly he comes to, and he looks over, and there's Wilson. is gone. So he starts screaming. He jumps up on the raft, Wilson, Wilson, and he sees him way off in the distance, and he starts swimming after him. He's swimming, 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 swimming. And it's at this point that you see that he's got a rope tied to him, to the raft, for the storms that he's been enduring. He doesn't want to get washed away from the raft. That's his salvation. He gets to the end of the rope, literally. He's literally at the end of his rope. And Wilson is still a few feet away. So without thinking, he takes the rope off of himself and he starts swimming, keeps swimming after Wilson. Within a few strokes, he suddenly realizes, what am I doing? 
he comes to his senses and realizes that he's risking his life to get this volleyball back. And he starts swimming back to the rope. And as he's swimming back to the rope, he's crying. He's bawling his eyes out. And he's apologizing to Wilson for having to abandon him. And yet, he gets the rope. He gets back to the raft. Now, the reason I share that illustration is that this text can be very hard to understand. And yet, my illustration is easy to understand. And my illustration, I believe, exactly talks about what Paul is talking about in this story. So as the story unfolds, I believe you'll see the picture. And I want you to try to remember how this maps to what I'm sharing. What is the ball? In the life of this man has on this island, that ball is the law. That ball is very helpful to him on this island. It has got him through extremely difficult times. But in God's timing, God sends salvation in the form of this plastic and the raft and the abilities that he has, and he escapes it. But now he's got both the salvation that has been provided by God and the law, that Wilson volleyball. And now he's forced to choose between the two. And he loves the law. He loves Wilson, and he's swimming after it. But he has to abandon the raft to save the law, to go after the law. God has torn them asunder. He's taken the salvation of the raft here and placed the law out there. This is exactly what is happening to the Jews in Paul's day. They have had the law for 1,400 years. They have been a Jew for 2,000 years under Abraham. And they believe that Paul is telling them to abandon all of that history, all of that time. And now we'll dig into details of this. Let's look at the text. We'll start with verse 15. Like I said, we already covered verses 11 to 14 in December. But at verse 15, we read this. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. I want to talk about three things in this little brief text. We. I had talked to you about this already, about how Paul has admonished the Galatians for departing from the gospel, and he's been very hard on them, very critical of them. And yet here he is saying, we. Again, he's reaching out to them. He's embracing them. We are brethren. And he's speaking to those in Galatia who are Jews. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. So we who are Jews by nature, we who are born into the Jewish faith and not sinners. So he's contrasting being Jews with being sinners. So what does that mean? What does sinner mean in our day? You know, sinner means the, the unsaved, right? In many ways, we think of it. Sinners is unsaved. But yet, is Paul saying that, that Jews are saved and Gentiles are unsaved? He's differentiating between Jew and Gentile that clearly? No, no. Sinner means something else even in our day. We can use the term sinner to describe people that are not Christians. But we can also use the term sinner for ourselves. Just because we're saved doesn't mean we sin. Doesn't mean we don't sin. Just because we're saved doesn't mean that we can't be called a sinner because we sin. 
But there are multiple definitions of sinner in our time, just as there were multiple definitions in his time. And so sinners, as he's using it here in the context of his day, he was differentiating between the Jew and the Gentile. Those that were in the covenant, those that were outside the covenant. The Jews were God's people. The Gentiles were Satan's people. They were outcasts. And Jesus treated the Gentiles like outcasts as he walked the earth. You remember the illustration of the woman when he went to Tyre and Sidon and the Syrophoenician woman came to him. The non-Jew came to him and asked him to heal her daughter. He turned to her and said, it is not good to give the food to the dogs. It is not good to give the little children's food to the dogs. He was calling her a dog. I mean, this is incredibly cruel in a sense, but it was in keeping with the blessings that God had bestowed upon the Jewish nation and had withheld from the Gentile nation. They were under his judgment. And so Jesus is just being consistent with his Jewishness. He was not sinning against this woman. He was putting her in her place. And what was her response? Yes, Lord, but even the little dogs eat the bread that drops from the table. So she was accepting his criticism of her, his calling her a Gentile dog. Yes, Lord, I know I'm outside the covenant, but I know that you can do what it is I want done. And I'm coming to you and asking for that, pleading for that. I'm humbling myself to that end. And so he says, incredible faith, go. You're, you know, it is as you wish. So she's saved. Her daughter is saved at that point through her humiliation. Jesus had humiliated her in a sense, but she had accepted that. She had embraced that. So now, we are in a different time now, though. Jesus' death has resulted in the crumbling of this wall that separated Jew and Gentile. Yet, not everybody understands exactly what's happened. Even Paul, even Barnabas, even Peter and Barnabas, they don't understand. Paul alone it understands this, and he has to explain it to everybody. Even the apostles, he has to explain it to. Now, we forget that Jesus was Jewish, completely Jewish. He was in his culture. He was there to save his culture. He had been sent there to be the perfect Jew. And yet, he also was sent to transform the world, to make not only the Jewish people the apple of God's eye, but all people, all saved people, the apple of God's eye. Now, let's go on to verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, when you read verse 16, let me read the whole thing. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. One verse. Three times we read the word justified. Three times we read the, the phrase works of the law. It's very important, this verse. He is hammering home something that we need to understand. Now, he says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. He's telling people that know this. So why does he have to tell them this? They know this, but they're not living out that truth. They haven't fully integrated that truth into their theology, into their practical living. Let me uh, use this also. I'll walk through this verse again and speak to you about affirmations and denials. 
we know that to affirm something is to admit it as being true, to embrace it. And yet in our culture, we often do not tolerate those that deny things. There are many, many preachers out there that are very popular that will not talk bad about anything. All they ever say are positives. Their whole message is positive, positive, positive. But God isn't like that, nor should we be like that. And this text, Paul hammers both positives and negatives. I have them in green and red here. And as I go green with an affirmation, I'll do this and red with this. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Bam, 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 bam. Affirmation, denial, affirmation, denial. Paul wants to be absolutely clear that there is a distinction between being justified by the works of the law and being justified by the grace of Christ. And he doesn't want us to get mixed up. Now, what I've just gone through are verses 15 and 16, and the whole thing comes down to two words within verse 16. And it's right in the middle of the verse. Even we. He's talking to the Jews, remember. He's talking to those that are Jewish by nature. And he says, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying, you all admit that the law is not enough. The law did not save you. The law cannot save you. Even you who are Jews know this. That's why you're here. That's why I'm writing to you. That's why you've accepted Christ. Now, I have a question to ask, though. Is what I just read in verse 16 about affirmations and denials, is it just a matter of emphasis or precedence? Is it that the law is de-emphasized in this time of grace? Is it that the order has been reversed, that the precedence is now Christ then works? And I say no. And we have the answer right there because right in the text, and let me read it again, two key words, we who are Jews by nature, not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but, a total contrast, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have not believed in, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. So faith and works are absolutely contrasted here. One is true, one is false. What one gets you into God's Good, good graces. The other does not. It falls short of getting you into God's good graces. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus. So what Paul is saying is that the law didn't even save you who love the law, who are Jewish by nature, who have had the law for 1,400 years. So why do you want to foist that upon the Gentiles? Why, why, why? And that's his question. Now, let me qualify something. When I say the law, I'm speaking of the law in this context. In Acts 15, 1, and I believe it's the same time here, men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what I mean when I'm talking about the law. It's this outward adherence that keeps you in God's good grace. 
it, it doesn't have anything to do about your heart. It doesn't have anything to do about God's work of grace inside you. It's all about outward conformity to something. And so when we talk about the law as being unable to save, it's really both the keeping of the ceremonial law, those outward ceremonies, and even that moral law. Because see, they had held on to the ceremonial law as being all important, and it, it really helped to hammer home the differences between Jew and Gentile, and they lowered the standard of the moral law to where they all felt that they were jumping across it. We've got it now. And so they elevate the ceremonial law to keep all the riffraff out. We can do this, but what they could not do, they lowered the standard of to say, okay, now it's at a point where we can do it. So see, this is what they were clinging to. Just as a culture, it just permeated their culture. There were people that did not teach this and believe this, but the Pharisees, the scribes, they all taught that. They all believed that, and this is what they're, they're opposing. Now, in verse 17, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. This verse, I think, can be difficult to understand. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners. Again, how did I use the word sinners a bit ago? We are also found sinners. In other words, there had been this distinction between Jew and Gentile. The Jews were the Jews by nature, and the, everyone else was sinners. If you remove that wall, if you take a, a clean cistern of water here and a filthy cistern of water here, and there is a connector between the two, and, it's, and there's a valve, and it's always closed to keep the two from polluting one another, and here's Paul cranking that valve open to allow the dirty water and the clean water to mix. This is how the Jews viewed this. This wall that separated you from Gentile was a wonderful wall. It kept all those evil, horrible, sinful Gentiles out. And it kept us pure over here. We're pure over here. And now you're saying, get rid of the wall? But you're saying, make yourselves sinners. That's what Paul is being accused of. And that's what Paul is having to wrestle with. And I have an, an illustration here in our time to kind of relate to that. For instance, I think there were two people that Paul is talking to. Two types of Judaizers. There is the Judaizer that is very concerned about them being different, them being special, their righteousness, apart from the Gentiles. You know, they really liked being clean and fresh over here in this clean water cistern. And then there were the Judaizers that really were just wrestling with the whole concept. You know, what is this that you're doing? You are, you are sullying God by making us dirty like the Gentiles. So see, if you, if you notice what I did is your concern, the concern of the two people, one concern is about me. One concern is about God. And in our culture, in our church, we're Calvinists and we may have been Arminians. We know a lot of Arminians. And there are two types of Arminians in my experience. There is the Arminian that is absolutely obsessed with their free will. My God doesn't do that. My God is like this. He doesn't override me. And so they are obsessed with themselves, with their freedoms, with their power. 
And there are the Arminians that even when I talk to them the first time, their main concern is about God's holiness, God's fairness. They just don't sense that what I'm sharing with them puts God in a good light. So they're more concerned for God's reputation in our arguing about Calvinism versus Arminianism than their free will, quote unquote. So I believe in each case, it's the latter type that Paul can reach with the truth of the word. With the Arminians, it's the latter type that you can reach with the truth of the word. When you go to the scripture with folks like that and you show them God's sovereignty, they accept it. But the person who's obsessed with their free will will continue to read that into scripture. They couldn't care less about God's sovereignty. They don't care, they don't care about what the clear Bible says because they absolutely know that their will will not be overridden by God, regardless of what the scripture says. And I believe the same thing is true of the Judaizers. You had the one Judaizer who was just obsessed with their self-righteousness and they would not let it go. But you had the other that was much more concerned about how this knocking down of this wall would cause the Jews to become more and more sullied by the, by the awful cultures that they lived in. It's a valid concern. And I think Paul addresses that as he writes the scripture. He addresses that intermingling and the risks that are associated with it. So then he asks, but if while we seek to be uh, justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? In other words, because Christ is demanding that this wall be taken down. If you buy what, what I've said, Paul is essentially saying, then does that mean that Christ is may, may, being a minister of sin by causing the Gentiles to be sullied with the, the uh, dirty water that's coming in, flowing in from the Gentile lifestyle? And, and of course he says certainly not. And this is where I need to to explain something that the Jews just had forgotten if they ever really did fully understand it. Exodus 20, verses 18 to 21. Let me read that. Exodus 20, verses 18 to 21. Now, God has just given the Ten Commandments. Moses went down to the people and spoke to them, and God spoke all these words, saying, and then you go through all the Ten Commandments. This is then what happened. Now, all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak, uh, speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. And that set the tone for the rest of the time that Moses spent with these Jews. Moses drew near to God, but the, the Jews stayed afar off. I want you to hear this commentary that Martin Luther has on this text, and he actually has it attached to Galatians 2.17. Moses brought the people out of their tents to have God speak to them personally from a cloud. But the people trembled with fear, fled, and standing afar off, they begged Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let God, not God speak with us lest we die. Listen, the proper office of the law is to lead us out of our tents, in other words, out of the security of our self-trust into the presence of God that we may perceive his anger at our sin. That 
is the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is not to justify, but to condemn. Always has been, always is. Luther later wrote, If my salvation was so difficult to accomplish that it necessitated the death of Christ, then all my works, all the righteousness of the law, are good for nothing. How can I buy for a penny that which costs a million dollars? So what he's saying is that I don't care what you might be able to do on this earth, you'll never earn more than a penny in terms of good works, in terms of self-righteousness, and yet you need a million dollars to get out of debt to God. Now let me tell you, though, a very clear distinction that the Jews of Paul's day had. They were not poor like the Gentiles. They didn't have a penny. They had two pennies. They had twice as much wealth as the Gentiles. And so therefore, they lorded it over the Gentiles. So see, it was this difference, this difference, this vast difference. So they were looking, instead of looking at God and his holiness, they were looking at the surrounding culture and their relative righteousness compared to those people in their culture. And they then thought themselves righteous. We are righteous enough to get to heaven. And so they therefore no, no longer looked at the law as condemning them. The law was what separated them from the riffraff. It's that wall. It's that law. It was doing a good thing. It was keeping the riffraff out. No, no. You are so much more than, like the dirty water than like the pure water of heaven. And that's what the Jews forgot. That's what they didn't realize. They realized it when they were with Moses back there when God gave the law, but they had forgotten that. Now let's move on to verse 19. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. Paul had to die to the law so that he could live to God, which means that as a Jew, he had not died to the law yet. It was only as he became a believer that he died to the law. The law served to remind him of his sin. And yet the Jews had become experts at self-justification. They used the law to their advantage. They used the law to bludgeon those evil Gentiles as opposed to using it to convict their own hearts of sin. The law was not intended to justify them. It was intended to condemn them. But they refused to submit to this condemnation of the law. They loved the law. They loved that it made them feel good about themselves, not that it made them feel unworthy of being in God's presence. So death to the law, death to this aspect of the law as being a means of self-justification makes us alive to Christ. We die to that law. We die to that means of getting to God. And so we stop swimming after whatever it is that we've collected on our raft. Now, if you're on a raft in the middle of the ocean, and stuff starts floating by. Let's say that your ship sunk. You're the only one that's alive and you've got this raft. And pretty soon you're loading it up with a bunch of stuff that came off the ship. Oh man, that's a cool chair. That's a cool chest. You know, look at all this money. And yet it's weighing your raft down. You're being foolish, right? I mean, you need that raft to save you. That raft is life. And yet, oh, and then you drop the chest. Oh, in a storm, you lose this stuff and you start swimming around and gathering it all back up again, putting it on your raft. That's foolishness. And that's what this is talking about. You must abandon all 
that you can then live in the grace of God. Now let's go on to the the actual name of the sermon is crucified with Christ. And so Galatians 2.20, I mean, many of you have probably been very familiar with this verse over the years. It's a wonderful verse. It's a nutshell description of what it means to be a Christian on earth, really. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When tempted to sin, Luther would admonish himself with this phrase, I am a baptized man. Now, what can that do to help you struggle against temptation? What does that mean? What does it mean that you're baptized, as we just saw Eliana be baptized? It means that you are set apart for God. You are God's property. It has emblazoned across your chest like those t-shirts, property of Jesus Christ. Baptism does that to you. It's, it's your family's outward statement, this child belongs to the Lord. And you're too small to know better. You belong to the Lord. Now, of course, we all belong to the Lord. But this is a way of saying, not only do I recognize, God, that this child is yours, I'm also giving him to you. I am promising you that I know this, and I will live with this truth. I have been crucified with Christ. So what does that mean? When you say those words, Paul said that of himself, and all Christians should say that of themselves. I have been crucified with Christ. Now, does that mean that you were physically crucified with Christ on the cross in Calvary? No. But it does mean that spiritually, you were crucified with Christ on Calvary. You were crucified with him, you were buried with him, you were raised to life with him, and you now sit in the heavenlies with him. The next phrase said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This is Colossians 3, verses 1 to 3. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So we Christians are dead men walking on this earth. We have died to the flesh. We have died to sin. We have died to the law and works righteousness. We are alive to God through grace. So when we all that we do and all that we accomplish is through the power of Christ as a believer. And it, as, as Christ lives in us, then we do something useful. But anything we do in our flesh is going to be burned when we leave this earth. It will be burned because it's useless. We did it apart from faith. And the life which I now live in the flesh. So see, we're still in the flesh. The life with, with which we now live in the flesh. We're in the flesh, but we are not of the flesh. You know, Pastor Kaiser has shown us in recent weeks the sinfulness of Saul. And we will soon see, well, one day see the rampant sinfulness of David. And yet, these men can be believers. We know David was. We know there's disputes or different disagreements over Saul. But I don't know anybody that doesn't regard David as a believer. And yet, what did David do? He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had this illicit liaison that resulted in the birth of a child. He then 
got her husband back from the front to try to pretend that the baby is his. He wouldn't sleep with his wife. He had too much character while his men were in the field. So then he takes this man and he hands him his death warrant, which tells Joab to put him in the front lines and have him killed. And David doesn't appear to have any regrets whatsoever about anything that he's done. He doesn't experience acknowledgement of this until much later when Nathan confronts him on it. And yet this is a man after God's own heart. This is a Christian. So what I'm telling you is this. We as Christians are susceptible to that type of failure before God. But yet, if we are Christians, we may be living this out in the flesh, but we are not of the flesh. God is not laying up those sins against us. He might correct us on this earth, just as he did David when he was eventually confronted by Nathan and corrected with the death of the child. But we will not suffer that pain and suffering that Christ suffered for those sins. They are on Christ. And so it's a remarkable thing that we as Christians are dead men walking. We will not suffer in heaven for the sins done in our flesh. And yet we can, as David, go on to do evil things. And we think, well, that's where, that's where Paul is telling this to the Romans. And they said, well, then you're just saying, let us sin that grace may abound. Oh, no. Oh, no. You, you will not enjoy life, living a life of sin as a child of God. You will hate life, just as David came to hate life. So you must live for God to be truly enjoying peace and joy and pleasure on this earth. Let me go on. I live by faith in the Son of God. I, I quote Luther a lot in this sermon, and it's because at the time I was preparing these, I was going through his commentary, and he's, he had just had tremendous insights, tremendous pithy quotes, and, tr and so I've, I've used many of them. But Luther made this comment about this phrase, I live by faith in the Son of God. We may now understand how spiritual life originates. It enters the heart by faith. Christ reigns in the heart with his Holy Spirit who sees hears, speaks, works, suffers, and does all things in and through us over the protest and the resistance of our flesh. So it's only as Christ grows stronger in us that that sinful temptation is overcome and beaten back. And it will never be conquered, not on this earth, not while we breathe. And so we don't want to make peace with this in, in us, we want to just more and more give ourselves over to Christ. When we go to his word, Father, change me. Make me holy. Have me to see my sin. Have me to relinquish my sin. All of it I give up for your sake. You know, this one uh, phrase that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will, with the temptation, give you a, a means of escape. I used to think, but God, why don't I escape? I just keep not escaping. But see, that's not God's fault, is it? God grants us the means to escape every temptation that comes our way, but it's because we don't want to succeed. It's our flesh grabbing the power of Christ and saying, oh, no, 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 it's my day. It's my day today. Sin reigns in me today. So the escape route is there. God promises us that it's there. I used to doubt him on this. I used to think, ah, I don't think so. Not today. Not given this one. No, this one's going to beat me. But see, you've been beaten already. You're not relying upon God.
you're just relying upon habits of flesh, bad habits. Uh, you know, sometimes we rely upon uh, just kind of superstition. You know, oh, this happened today. It's going to be a bad day. Yeah, I can just go sin now because I know it's going to be a bad day. You know, I can be free from worry now. I know it's going to be a bad day. But that's not how we're to live. We're to constantly wage war against the old man within us. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ died for all of his elect. We know this. We know this. But the thing that we tend to forget is that Christ died for me individually. I used to hear that thing, uh, that phrase, personal Savior. Christ is my personal Savior. Make Christ your personal Savior. I hated that phrase. I thought, I thought you people are being so uh, me, me, me. It's all about you, you, you. My personal Savior. It's like it's my Jesus iPod, you know. It's, it's like mine, mine, mine. I, I, I. I, Jesus. It's I, Jesus. But I, Savior. But I was rebuked when I studied Galatians 2.20. Because what does Galatians 2.20 say? Paul is saying this. I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's all about him, isn't it? He's being so self-centered in that text. <laughs> Therefore, I can too. Paul led the way. But see, that's the thing about God. He understands that about us. He's made us. He knows that we live in ourselves. We have this world. He is there with us. It's not that we're, he wants us to be lost in this aggregate of Christians in the world, these millions and millions of people. No, he loves you. He gave himself for you. And so it's all about that. Gary North in his Dominion uh, Covenant book, I think, the Genesis commentary, spoke of it in an appendix as cosmic personalism. It's really what separates Christianity from all other religions. God is the God of individuals. And so that is what makes Christianity so unique. He comes to you where you are. And, and, and it's not that we're being made much of amongst ourselves. God is making much of us. And it's not that we're inherently valuable. He is imputing that value to us. So we don't do this. God does it, and it's a wonderful thing. So Christ's death is not a mere fact of history. It is an intensely personal act that he did for individuals that embrace him. You know, a few weeks ago, at the end of one of Phil's sermons, I shared my testimony, and we had several shared stories of God's grace. And that's what life as a Christian is like, intensely personal. And so we don't want to lose that. We want to be as self-centered as Paul commends us to be when it comes to honoring God for what he has done in our lives. My kids years ago uh, would play a game, and I think it kind of went through the church a few years ago, but it was that amusement park game where you make amusement rides and then all these people kind of start coming to your park and you, as the creator of the game, can touch people and see into their heads. You can even pick them up and put them somewhere else, you know. I don't know, maybe in a trash can. I don't know if you can do that. But you can pick these people up, read their minds, and then put them somewhere else. And, you know, as humans, we think with this power, oh, yeah, 
you know, could you imagine if you could play that game and you could fling people over? Ah! I mean, that's all of our little boys would just be doing that all the time. You know, they, they wouldn't be moving them around and reading their minds. Oh, look what I can do with this guy. So we can't be trusted with God-like powers, honestly. Only God can be trusted with God-like powers. And so when God sees into us, it isn't about squishing us like an ant. It's about interacting with us like a fellow human being. And so that's why Christ came, to interact with us as a fellow human being. The last uh, verse here, I just made it through uh, verse 20. The last verse is, I do not set aside the grace of God. Now, I started with this illustration of the castaway, and a beautiful thing, as I studied this text, and I had already had this illustration in mind, as I studied this verse, the phrase set aside, I do not set aside the grace of God, can be read like this. I do not deny the grace of God. I do not despise the grace of God. I do not reject the grace of God. I do not cast away the grace of God. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, this is beautiful. I started with the illustration of a castaway, God saving a castaway, and here we close with the saved person casting away self-righteousness. I do not set aside the grace of God. So they do not cast away that rope to the raft. Instead, they cast away that which was separating from them from going back to that raft. He separates himself from Wilson, the law, from any acts of self-righteousness that you might depend upon in this world. You separate yourselves from them. We hang on to our works as if there's something valuable. I used that illustration earlier that if you were on this raft and you were trying to save your life, and yet you could just be burdening it with all this junk that came off the ship that sunk, that left you there, or the plane that went down. But that's not what life is about. Life is frankly about being a minimalist when it comes to stuff like that. Anything that you value and love and have set your heart upon that is short of God himself, that is not predicated on the love of God, he will require from your hands. You got it. I've got it. I'm not giving it up. And God will just grab it and grab it and grab it. And he'll just keep taking it and tossing it out like rubbish that it is. But you go get it again. You bring it back. You put it in that treasured position. We do this over and over and over again. But God will continue to wrest them out of your hands. That's what he has promised you, that he will be your treasure, that he will be your treasure, not anything else that you might grab on this earth and hold on to. And that is love. You know, when I tell people, as they're experiencing hardship and they experience God's rebuke, other people are getting away with sin and they're not. That's the love of God. If you feel God come down on you very quickly for some sin that you've committed, thank God. Thank God he didn't let you go for days or weeks or months or years. And when you see other people who just seem to always be getting away with things and always be free from this, recognize that this might be their heaven. This is as good as it gets for them, perhaps. They might be destined for hell. So don't think ill of them. Don't be angry at them. I'm suggesting uh, take pity on them. Try to reach out to them with the gospel if, they, if they'll listen. And uh, hopefully one day, 20 years from now, they'll be looking back on their lives and saying, boy, you know, why is God now correcting me instantly when I do these things? It's his blessing. It's his blessing to you. Now, 
God, uh, Christ, is the author and perfecter of our faith. He began it. He will finish it. And yet, we really grow in our sanctification and we grow closer to God as we abdicate that role, as we submit to him, very, very simply. The Christian life is not complex. It is simple. And yet, it is something that we want to try to make complex because we can then explain our failure away to adhere to the simplicity of the truth. So what I encourage you to do is give anything up that is holding you back from that raft that is, that is on that raft now that you value, that isn't helping you get to heaven. Only that raft, faith in Christ, will be what gets you to heaven. Everything else will be tested through the fire and burned up if it's not of God and not of faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would uh, have your Holy Spirit to uh, open our eyes to our lives. Lord, if there are those present here that are apart from you, that don't recognize that there is the need to be on that raft, we pray, Father, please open their eyes. I have your Holy Spirit to pour into their lives all of your many blessings. We thank you for your ministering angels. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the indwelling of Christ, that we rest in the assurance that we sit with him in the heavenly places, that we will resume and redeem our lives when we leave this earth and go to him in heaven. We thank you, Father, for these many promises. We ask you to be with us now and by your grace to live as it pleases you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.